0: problems oh lord do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath it starts but it goes on to say listen all my longings lie open before you O lord my sighing is not hidden uh, from you i'm like a deaf man who cannot hear like a mute who cannot open his mouth and so it says in verse 15 i wait for you O lord you will answer O lord my god you go into psalm 39 and you find it uh, brings realism Uh, Psalm 39 is about the whole experience of being silent and still, just waiting for God, and you you look at your life and you begin to realise that your days are just a mere handbreadth, the span of my years is nothing before you. And so he says, my hope's in you. I've got no hope anywhere else. And so I wait and I wait with a bit more perspective because you didn't answer my prayer straight away. It's made me think about the whole meaning of my life and everything else. And so you reach Psalm 40 and Psalm 40 is where I waited patiently for the Lord. Verse one, he turned to me and heard my cry. And you begin to realize it's not because God has not been listening. It's not because God does not care or he's inattentive, it's just he's doing other things and then when it's the right moment, exactly the right moment for him to act, he turns in your direction, he hears your cry and he moves on the situation. So that's how Sam 40 fits in. And uh, I found a, 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 an interesting article about it on, on the internet, which um, by a pastor in Flagstaff, Arizona, and he said about waiting this, it's not a passive ho-hum kind of waiting like you do at the doctor's office when you thumb through a bunch of magazines to pass the time. Rather, it is an intently active time when your situation in the pit tunes your heart to the Lord in ways that you wouldn't normally experience. It means to wait expectantly as you hope for God's promises to be fulfilled on your behalf. And the more intense your situation, the more intently you wait upon the Lord to fulfill his promises. And that, of course, is why God sometimes makes us wait for what we we really desire, because it it draws us closer to him. It helps us understand ourselves better, understand what we're asking for better. And then at the right time, God keeps his prayer. So let's look at the, the, the psalm then. And the first section of it is about the king's experience, as I said. First of all, there's what God did and there are several things that are mentioned aren't there in this first pit he took me out of the pit says david what's the pit well it's just a hole in the ground that's all that the word means it was it's sometimes translated dungeon or prison uh, in the old testament It sometimes means a well although obviously in this case uh, there's no water in there except what's not intended to be there and just makes the mud but god has taken him right out of the problem and something that just seemed to wrap him around all the time uh, is, is taken away. Uh, all he could see was a small patch of sky above, and the chance of getting there seemed absolutely minimal. And then God just delivered him from it. And uh, it says it's a, a, a slimy pit, or in some translations, a horrible pit. Actually, the word simply means in Hebrew, a pit of roaring. And sometimes that word is used for the roaring of the ocean, the sea, and the waves. And it's as if you're in a a cavern with everything reverberating around you, all sorts of noises coming from here and there, different voices, confusing sounds echoing around. You cannot see your way out. And you cry out to the Lord and the Lord takes that problem away. But he doesn't just do that. He takes you out of the miry clay. You see, at the bottom of this pit, it's muddy and when you try to get a a footing for your feet you slip over all the time they just seem to go deeper and deeper into trouble there's nothing solid there's no there's no ground you can stand on and often it's like that when we're in pressure isn't it you hear all these confusing voices around you they they they, they ring in your head without in, in without stopping and your feet just cannot find a solid foundation but now your feet have been put on the rock and God has given him a sense of of, of belonging and, and togetherness. It just did not have before a sense of, of, of being together as a human being, just just knowing where he's going at last. His steps are being established as well. He set my feet on the rock and it says, gave me a firm place to stand in the NIV. Well, that's not really quite what it's talking about. It's, it's, it's making sure that the steps you take in future are in the right direction. So it's not just that God solves your problem, pulls you out and says, right, okay, away you go and do better this time. No, he helps you learn from your experience and make positive steps in the right direction too. Then what else is there? There's a new song in your mouth. God doesn't want just to deliver you. He wants to make you joyful as a result of that as well. And the end result of that new song that you sing is that other people get uh, in, in, involved in the whole thing as well uh, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord it says and that's what happens isn't it that when you have really been delivered by God from a major problem if other people see it they can be filled with awe at what God can do and then they start praising God as well so that's the experience he's had. What did you learn through it? Well, this is where the next verse is coming. I think there are two things that he learned. First of all, that God is our only hope in a situation like that. Blessed is the man, says verse four, who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. There are plenty of people who try and solve the problems for themselves. And the proud, the word really means the defiant, those who don't want any help, those who don't want God involved. If I'm in a mess, I'm going to sort this out myself. And to, it's easy <coughs> to trust other people who are proud, who are confident, who will say, well, the problem you've got is this, and all you need to do is that. And uh, you do things that um, you shouldn't be doing because they seem to know the way ahead. But the time says, blessed are you if you don't do that. Don't listen to anybody else's answer. Just look to God. God is our only hope. He's the only way out of all of that. And uh, all other gods are false gods, so don't cut corners, don't try to find illegitimate ways out of the situation, wait on God and let him bring about the the answer in his own time. The second thing is learn that God's plans can be trusted. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you planned for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, there would be too many to declare. I didn't see it, Lord, when I was at the bottom of the pit. But actually, you are planning and working through it all the time. And you I, you are, are doing the things that, that, that I need to, to, to have done for me in the background all the way through. And in everything that happens, God is at work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Matthew Henry said about this verse, all his wonderful works are the product of his thoughts to usward. He does all according to the counsel of his own will, the purposes of his grace which he purposed in himself. They are the projects of infinite wisdom, the designs of everlasting love, thoughts of good and not of evil, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. His gifts and callings will therefore be without repentance because they are not sudden resolves but the result of his thoughts, his many thoughts to usward when God rescues you from the pit. It's not that you suddenly turned around and noticed and you, like, oh dear me, I'd better do something here, he's in a bit of a mess. It's because all the way through he's been planning what's going to happen. It struck me last week when I was uh, speaking about Romans chapter 8, that uh, this is why at the end of a, a, a section uh, where it talks about who can separate us from the love of Christ, you know, all these things that, that would try to separate us can't get us away from God's love and and it goes into a, a little bit of theology those whom god called he also justified I I, I I all of that sort of stuff and and what it's saying is god's love can be depended on because god's plan is just working through quietly all the way through whether it seems to be or not so that's the king's experience the, the next bit of it oops where am i going the next bit of it is is is, is verses 6 to 10 and this is where it talks about the servant Okay, God has brought you back onto your feet. And that is so that you can live in a new relationship with him and be his servant. And it talks about the servant's heart. Serving God is about four things, I think, in this section. First of all, it's about grace, not demands. God is not asking us for for sacrifices and offerings, for burnt offerings, for sin offerings. And uh, the psalm quite bluntly says, you didn't require these things. Yes, they're part of the Old Testament law, but they're not because God likes animals being slaughtered and uh, that kind of stuff. It's just they're there as a picture to show the people of Israel down through history what sin is all about and what forgiveness is all about. God isn't interested in sacrifices just for the sake of sacrifices. What he really wants is a, a willing heart that responds to him. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. What does that mean? Well, uh, literally in Hebrew, it means my ears you have dug out. (laughs) It's as if your ears are all blocked with all sorts of junk that uh, are stopping you hearing the voice of God. And God has bored into your ears to make it possible for you to hear his voice. And so what he wants for you is a willing response to his voice, uh, his voice to you. And in the Greek version, the Septuagint of the Old Testament, which was the version that Jesus and his disciples read, uh, this verse is translated, a body you have prepared for me. More than just ears, your whole physical system is there to be of use to God as you respond to him. He doesn't want things from you, sacrifices, offerings. He wants you. He wants the whole of you. It's about grace. You responding freely (coughs) to God's possession of you and then there's a second thing it's about willing submission it's about me saying here I am Lord Uh, whatever you want you can have here I am I have come it is written about me in the scroll in other words this has been planned for me ever since the start and I know my life is not going to be fulfilled I'm not going to be happy in, in anything I do unless I'm following your plan for my life so I'm willingly submitting to you And there's a third thing, it's about God's perfect plans. I desire to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I've internalised everything you want so that I can serve you properly and faithfully in just the way you require. But there's a fourth thing too, isn't there? And we know that from Hebrews chapter 10. And you'll remember studying Hebrews over the last couple of years. It's about Jesus. (laughs) And this whole section about servanthood reflects what Jesus is going to be about in the the, the way that he models perfect service to God when he comes down to earth. Of course, the whole Psalm isn't about uh, Jesus. Verse 12, for instance, my sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. That wasn't true about Jesus. But this section is a perfect picture. And that's why Hebrews 10 picks it out and says, look, it's talking about Jesus. 700 years or thereabouts, maybe 800 years before he actually appeared. So that's the servant's heart. And the next thing that you find is the servant's job. And this job is to proclaim. And you find that in verses 9 and 10, don't you? I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation and it's important that the servant of God is obvious to the outside world as somebody who trusts in everything that God has given you and is able to testify to God's, well, it talks about his righteousness, it talks about his faithfulness, it talks about his rescue, it talks about his love, and it talks about his truth or his reliability, all of that stuff. Why does God need to be praised like that? Well, C.S. Lewis uh, admitted in one of his books that he had difficulties with that when he was a a, a very young Christian. And he thought, God must be a bit big headed if he wants all of this talking about him to go on all the time. And then he said, I realized that 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 uh, that 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 praise is actually what people do naturally. I mean, why would you be silent if God had met with your life in such an incredible way? Well, I can think of at least three reasons why people sometimes don't talk about it, keep quiet about it. One reason might be pride. You don't want to admit that you were in a hole and you had to be rescued by God, that you couldn't do it yourself, that you needed sticking together again. Another reason might be forgetfulness. Sometimes God does big things for us and we think, sure, thank goodness that's over and go away and forget all about it. Like most of those lepers. Do you remember in Samaria that Jesus healed? Only one came back to say thank you. We so easily forget the goodness of God. Then there's ingratitude as well. We take God for granted. We're treating like some sort of cosmic ATM that we can get uh, uh, what we need out of whenever we want it. And when you talk about it, when you let other people see how much God has blessed you and helped you, that is when uh, uh, God starts to be praised. But C.S. Lewis said, why does God need all of his praise? And he said this, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. See, he said, I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honour. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And that's why everything in the universe rings with praise. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. God's creation reflects the glory of God all around. You know? and, and similarly, human beings should do that. But human beings, with their freedom of choice, are the only beings in the universe who can choose naturally not to praise God. And so when somebody is truly serving God properly, when somebody truly has a heart of gratitude for all that God has given, that's when... He's going to burst into praise and let everybody else know what God has done for him. Okay, let's move on into the last section then. The new crisis. Because in verse 11, as we've noticed before, suddenly the whole thing swings around again. And many people commented on this, Sam, and said, well, this is life, isn't it? You know, you don't get hauled out of the pit once. It happens again and again throughout life. We go into new crises and difficulties all the time. And we need to recognize that this is going to happen to us. Just because we're okay now does not mean that we won't need God's help again tomorrow. And so the desperate circumstances here uh, uh, are, are talked about in eleven to seventeen. First of all, there's a problem. It talks about the troubles we've got, troubles without numbers surround me, verse twelve. And it talks also about sin. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. Now you you'll you find very often that uh, troubles and sin connect that the one and the other get intertwined. It's not, of course, because all the troubles we get come from sin. That was the um, mistake that uh, uh, Jesus' uh, opponents made uh, when they, they, they saw, or, or Jesus' disciples made even, when they saw a man who'd been born blind and said, who sinned? Was it this man or his mom, his parents? Somebody must have sinned somewhere or he would not have been born blind. Troubles come from sin. That's not the case necessarily, is it? Troubles can come out of a clear blue sky and we may not have done anything wrong at all. But when troubles come, the fact that we are sinful people can get involved in the whole thing and make the trouble seem all the worse. My sins have overtaken me, it says here, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. When you get into a situation of distress and and stress, then you start to realize just how fallible you are and how many mistakes you've made, and and, and you just can't see beyond the horizon. Um, In the book of Lamentations, which talks about all the trouble that people went through in Jerusalem when their city was, was, was torn down and they were sent into exile, it says, my sins have been woven into a yoke and it's been placed on my shoulders as if sins that you hardly noticed before the trouble came suddenly became a heavy weight pressing down on you that you couldn't get away from. And uh, this is this is what often happens when that happens and it takes care. You in place, you, you become aware of things. David Clarkson was one of the old Puritan preachers of the 18, uh, 17th century, even. And he said this pick out the most best religious duty that ever you perform. And even in that performance, you may find such a swarm of sins as cannot be numbered. In the best prayer that ever you put up to God, irreverence, lukewarmness, unbelief, spiritual pride, self-seeking, hypocrisy, distractions, and many more that an enlightened soul grieves and bewails. And yet, there are many more that the pure eye of God discerns than any man does take notice of. And so the psalmist has suddenly started becoming super sensitive to the sins that are, are, are there in his life and that tends to happen doesn't it when we're sailing along and everything's fine then you tend to think of yourself as a reasonably good person but when the trouble comes then you start to see just how much God still has to put right in you And so he says, do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord, verse 11. May your love and your truth always protect me. Suddenly, God seems a long way away and he's not sure he's going to be protected uh, anymore. Uh, And he feels very exposed, very vulnerable. That's what it's like, isn't it? To be in the pit. But, you know, God does not abandon us. His protection does not go away. And for all that this psalm says, oh, Lord, do not delay. Even the last time, oh, my God, do not delay. God, where have you gone? Please help me. Don't forget me, oh, Lord. He knows, really, God is not going to forget him. It's easy, though, in a situation of distress, not to notice just how protected you are. Takes you back, doesn't it, to to, to 2 Kings chapter 6, when the prophet Elisha uh, is on the hit list from the king of Aram. And he realises Elisha has gone to a city called Dothan, and so he sends an army against him. When Elisha gets up in the morning, there's a whole army of chariots ringed around Dothan, and the young man who's with Elisha panics. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked, don't be afraid. The prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Hmm. God's protection doesn't go away. It just seems to sometimes when we're in distress, but he's ready to pull us out of the pit just at the moment when we need it. Well, so much for the problem. What about the prayer then? at the end of it I think it covers three areas and the prayer is from verse 13 onwards be pleased O Lord to save me O Lord come quickly to help me you've got to come and rescue me Lord once again you've pulled me out of problems before but here we go again Lord save my life but it's not just about my life it's about my enemies may all who seek to take my life be put to shame and confusion may all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace now, for David, those were physical enemies. As king, he always had people trying to do him down and attack him, and, uh, and, and, and he lived a life of battle. He was a man of blood, David. For us, it's not going to be physical enemies. We don't pray against the people next door or down the street or whatever, or the boss at work. What we pray against are the spiritual enemies at war against our soul that would tear us down and uh, uh, and destroy the peace and the confidence that we have in God and if they could would destroy our status with God as well but they can't attack us and so David prays too that his enemies may be appalled at their own shame and he says may all who uh, seek you rejoice and be glad in you and that's the thing he doesn't want just to be glad in himself he wants him and the people he talks to about all of this to rejoice in God and so it's about my life and it's about my enemies but it's also about God God bring me back the joy of your salvation God get me out of this situation so that I can praise you that's the important thing isn't it not just to value God for the things he does for us but for who he is for his faithfulness, for his love. There's an old hymn, uh, if you've ever been in Brethren Morning Services, you'll probably remember it from years ago, uh, where some of the lines go like this. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And so right at the end of this whole thing, uh, David uh, sums it up with his final verse. Yet I am poor and needy. Or you could probably translate that better. I, I, as for me, I, I, as a result of all of this, where does this leave me? As for me, I'm still poor and needy. Still can't help myself. We've been through two crises in the course of this, psalm, And God, you've got me out of them. But I'm still poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. I have no right to have you thinking of me, but my only hope in my poor and needy state is that that is what you're doing. And if you're thinking of me, well, you're my help and my deliverer. You're my God. Do not delay to help me when I need it, because I know I'm totally dependent on you all the way through. So that's Psalm 40, a great psalm to read when you're in in trouble, a great psalm to read when you're out of trouble as well, because you'll be in trouble again. And your need will still be the same. The God who can solve problems for you that nobody else can, who can pull you out of the pit and can give you once again the joy and the wonder of belonging to him in a new enhanced way. Let's just pray for a second and then, then I'll hand back. Heavenly Father, help us for whatever's going on in our life at the moment to get the good out of whatever you want us to have from Psalm 40 tonight. And may we take that into next week. So that as we face difficulties uh, in our own lives or as we simply enjoy the good season you've put us into or whatever is going on with us, we'll be able to be drawn closer to you and enjoy you and our relationship with you in an enhanced way as we go on through a life in which we know your plans are best, your strength is never failing and your deliverance is sure. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, I'll now stop sharing. I think I'll stop sharing it. Yep, stop sharing, there's a button. Oh, there's everybody. Great. Okay. Thank you, John. Um, thank you for those closing words as well. Uh, thank you for this evening and this morning. Um, am I unmuted? I am unmuted, Sorry. right. looking blank, looks at me. Um, Apologies for the early technical um, hitches. Um, I'd say technical, but I think it was me that was the hitch rather than the technology. Um, Preparation is everything. I say thank you again, John, and thank you all for coming. Um, Don't forget on Tuesday after 9.30, you can all um, get in touch with Gemma to book in for next Sunday morning. Um, And yeah, hopefully you all have nice weeks. Enjoy the bank holiday weather, whether it be good or bad. Um, And see you all soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye -bye. Thanks. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you again, John. Bye. See you soon. See you soon. Cheerio. Thanks, John.